Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's a pretty provocative statement for some of us. We sit culturally in a time where nothing is certain, and everyone is entitled to their opinion, rightly so, and it is culturally necessary to treat every opinion as valid. And there's nothing as unattractive today as a person who thinks their point of view is the right point of view or the only point of view. The thing that is true is that you can hold your truth and I can hold my truth. You can hold it. You can hold it. Doesn't matter what your truth is. What matters is that you have a truth. What is most important is that we have this truth and we're true to our truth. It is not, however, important what is true, but that you have a truth. We're looking in the Acts passage today, Acts chapter 4, which Larry read, and I'd like you to take your Bibles out and we can take a greater look at this passage, but before we do so, I'd like to pray. Thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to sit under your word, for your word is truth. It is living and active. Your word alone has the power, just like a sword, to divide our soul, to clarify what is right and good, to point out what is in need, and also to call us to yourself. So we come today wanting to sit under your word. Let your word speak to our hearts. And may our hearts be fertile ground for it. This we pray in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going through the book of Acts, and we're seeing the rise of the church, the birth of the church, the development and the growth of the church. And we've seen the first church worship service. We've seen the the church fellowship. We've heard the first sermon. And today we're going to see for the first time the first sense of challenge or hostility to the church. And make no mistake, the church of Jesus Christ that proclaims truth is always uh, on a collision course against the culture of its day or the power brokers of the day. And today the power brokers we have heard about are the Jewish religious leaders And there are several unmistakable qualities I see in this passage, and we see in the book of Acts about the church, several things that they just continue to manifest as we read passage after passage in this book. And I would say those things are this. First, the boldness about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a boldness about that. Secondly, their white, hot belief in the exclusivity of this message and the radical inclusivity of it. And third, their deep-seated affection for Jesus. So I'll start off with the first one, boldness. The writer of uh, Acts, Luke, says, 
The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Peter and John had healed a man. And so they gather. Annas, the high priest, was there. Caiaphas, John, Alexander. It's important. These are historical people and names. This isn't just a fabricated story. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Where do you get the ability to do this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is crippled and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Now, it would be really important to understand they're standing before the very people, the very names who had about two months prior tried, convicted, and crucified Jesus, handing him over to the Roman authorities to be murdered in the worst of all ways. And so here they are, these two uh, disciples of Jesus, Peter and John, standing there, And they're standing before the leaders of Jewish society, Jewish religious systems, the politicians, the power brokers. And they know that these people will settle for nothing less than the end of this story and the conclusion of this message. So most likely, Peter and John had courageously already embraced what was about to happen to them. And to that end, Jesus promised them. They remembered these promises, I'm sure, as they were standing there. He said, when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers, and the authorities, do not worry about how you should make your defense or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that moment what you must say. I have a feeling that came to their mind. Previously, the leaders, the religious leaders who had heard Peter's sermon, it says, In the first part of the chapter 4 of Acts, they were annoyed by this. They were angered. The word conjures up just this grievance that they had. These people are not stopping talking about this. And it says they come to them. The words really imply they stomped up to them. Um, I can say something to a child, and they have that ability to stomp away as if they're saying to me, I'm going to get you back somehow. So here they are stomping up to these disciples. They arrest them. They hold them for the night, and then they interview them. And behind closed doors, they demand a response of them. And here's what they demand. By whose authority have you done this? Whose power or whose name have you healed this man? And that you know, uh, if you study the Jewish faith, it is driven on authority. It is the authority of God that speaks. It is the authority of God's teaching and his word that makes all things come. So the Jewish system was concerned with authority. And if you have authority, you can do great things in God's name. So they want a name from Peter and John. Give us a name. Whose power or whose authority are you doing this? I'd like you to think about your name this morning for just a moment. 
and how you got it. Most of us got our name because our parents either like the sound of that name or they like the meaning of it, or some parents today want to be really edgy and creative with the names. It's all good. Um, As a young believer, I learned a song, and the song really helped me understand my identity, and the song goes something like this. I won't sing it and scare you off. I will change your name. You will no longer be called wounded, outcast, lowly, or afraid. I will change your name. Your new name shall be confident, joyfulness, overcoming one, faithfulness, friend of God, one who seeks my face. So sitting here today, whether you're in here or out there online, what does your name mean? When I was younger, I looked up the meaning of my name, and it means handsome. Why are you laughing? The other version of my meaning of the meaning of my name is harmony. That's probably more true than the first. But God gave me a new name on the inside, confident, joyful, overcoming one, faithful, friend of God, one who seeks my face. When we named our children, we knew that we could not force them into the meaning of their name. There was just no way for us to do that. But in the scriptures, the name God gives his people are indicators of their future. And for the Jewish people, God's name was so powerful and so personal that you couldn't even say it out loud. But they all knew it. And that name conveyed this divine power. Even Moses begged God before God said, I want you to take the people out of Egypt. He said, I've got to go tell Pharaoh this. Whose name am I supposed to tell them has sent me? And he said, you tell Pharaoh, I am who I am. The fancy word, of course, is the tetragrammaton. It's the the word, this name, that you can't even say, and we have to turn it into consonants so you can say another version of it, because that name is so powerful and so holy. God's name is the all-encompassing, self-sufficient, sovereign name. His name conveys that he exists and has existed before all things, and there is nothing behind him that makes him exist. He's the eternal one. And because he is self-sufficient, he does not change. And I'm not finished. He is the inexhaustible source of everything. That's the power conveyed behind God's name. As Christians, we come this morning to believe and to be reassured that the name of Jesus is a name above all names. It is so powerful, his name that anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference. Jew, Gentile, makes no difference who you are or where you are or what you've done. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
The literal name Jesus was pretty common back then, but the power behind his name is the person of Jesus who was God incarnate. His name is so powerful. Jesus said, if you ask of of me anything in my name, I will give it to you. I will do it. The psalmist tells us that God's name is so powerful that he evokes a sense of glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. And the name of Jesus has power even in how we live. The Apostle Paul writes, whatever you do in word or deed, do it, everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus. So these religious leaders want a name because that name conveys authority by which Peter and John are doing everything. And the text says this about Peter. It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account for the act of kindness, then know this, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. This brings me to my second point, which is what we see in Peter and John standing here, this white hot belief, this unshakable faith. We heard in the gospel lesson, when Jesus first came to them, they were afraid. And what does he do? He sits down and he has a meal with them. They watch him eat fish. They watch him do something that demonstrates he's real and alive, not a ghost. And they were changed by this. And that change compelled them and the church to go and be witnesses of his resurrection. Peter and John are standing before the very people who have the power to make them go away, whether it's temporarily or forever. And with boldness, they testify about Jesus. A few years ago, a friend of mine who had uh, owned a Ford dealership took me out back of the Ford dealership, and he showed me the employee parking spots. He, He had a set of spots where all the employees parking, parked, and he said, what do you notice about the cars? And I said, well, they're all older model cars. And he said, they're not Fords. And it took me a second. And he said, you know, there's salesmen who sell a product, and there are those that believe in their product. And the most effective salesman is the salesman who believes in what they're selling. The most effective disciple is the person who believes that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. If you don't believe that, or if you marginally believe it, you will not experience this boldness. And that's remarkable that we see in Peter and John. With great boldness and a blindingly white hot faith, Peter begins to teach something very profound from the scriptures in this passage. Israel is a house, and it was supposed to be a house that would be a light to the nations. We heard this read in Micah, that the nations would stream to the house of the Lord. 
And in fact, the prophet Isaiah says, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. And all the nations of the world will be blessed through this house. What a beautiful house that is. What a great picture when we see it. And by the time that we get to Jesus, the house is broken down. If you've ever sold a house and you have to have it inspected, it's not a fun process because someone tells, someone comes over to your house and tells you exactly everything that's wrong with it. And some things you know and some things you don't want to hear. We were selling a house one time and the day before we closed, the day before our septic tank on our house collapses in our backyard and our house floods the day before. And it's like a $4,500 get out of jail house payment that or payment that we had to make to sell the sucker. 24 hours is the difference. Sorry, I'm still getting over that. (laughs) Along comes Jesus and he reminds Israel Your house is broken down. It's collapsing. He reminds us as well. The house of our hearts will collapse. He says that of Israel, they were so singularly obedient to the law that they'd forgotten to love. And because they were so concerned with purity, They built a wall in their temple courts to say to the Gentiles, you are not worthy to be in the presence of God. They had forgotten God. They had a sheer veneer of holiness, but inside they were bankrupt. Their house was badly broken down and crumbling. And worse, they couldn't even see it. And along comes Jesus, and he says this, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He quotes Psalm 118. Marvelous. What does he mean? All along, God has been building a house for humanity, for a people, his people, a spiritual house. And Jesus is the cornerstone of that house. Now, in the ancient days, if you built a structure, you had to first start with the cornerstone. It was the most important stone. It was the the piece of stone that affected the foundations and the dimensions of the rest of the house. If you're off on the cornerstone, the house will crumble eventually. So, Builders would have to go into a quarry. They would have to inspect the stones. And each stone that didn't fit the perfect qualifications was rejected. And so what Jesus is saying is the builders of the house of that day, they were building a collapsing house. And the very cornerstone that's needed for that house to thrive, they rejected. And what God was doing in this event is he was actually renewing his whole house. He was building a faithful house, a house committed to God, and it was built on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
Peter is standing before the house of Israel and he says, God has rejected your house. Your cornerstone is faulty. Your foundations are flawed. And then he takes this great Psalm 118 and he interprets it for them. Every Passover, the Jewish people would come back into Israel and they would sing the Hallel songs, the Hallelujah Psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. As they would rise into Jerusalem, they would be singing these very songs. He's, He's telling the religious leaders, you who know these songs, this is happening in your, in before your eyes. This is what Peter says full of belief. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, but he has become the cornerstone. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Judson reminded us last week in a great sermon, the the very people who killed the author of life are being told what you did by rejecting this cornerstone has proven to be true. You rejected him, but God has accepted Jesus as the true cornerstone of faith. And in fact, salvation is found in no one else or nothing else but this cornerstone. There is no other path. There is no other way. As exclusive as that sounds, it is radically inclusive because the invitation is for all nations, Jew, Gentile, to come and to see the capstone. Jesus stands at the door of a house as the cornerstone. And he says, I am the door for the sheep. You see what enabled Peter and John to courageously stand for the people who tried and killed Jesus is that they were convinced of it. It wasn't just a good philosophical argument or speculation. They had seen the risen Lord. Now liken it to this. If your faith isn't worth dying for, then it isn't worth living for either. You see, the religious leaders proclaimed that when they had Jesus tried and killed, that they have no king but Caesar. Imagine that. All over the Roman world, Caesar Augustus. Even today, we remember the month of August named after this great Roman emperor. It was all over buildings and money. Caesar was the son of God. He was to be worshiped and honored. His name was sacred and powerful. And yet Peter heals a man who's lame and says, the greatest power in the world is the name of Jesus. This moves me to our third piece, which is the affection of Jesus. So it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed with them, there was nothing more they could say. When I was a senior in high school, we played Yale, 
Oklahoma, small town. And um, it, it, Yale, Oklahoma was like the yokels, the, the, you know, small townville, the nobody. And our team had just been ranked in the top 20 in the state in high school basketball. So we step onto this basketball court against a bunch of guys who had mullets and mustaches and you know, we're wearing our Nikes and our Reeboks, and they're wearing Payless shoes. If you remember that store, I think they went out of business. No, no surprise there. And we're looking down on these guys, and they just beat the tar out of us. I mean, here we are, ranked this powerful, mighty school. bunch of yokels took us to task. And we gathered afterwards in the locker room, and we, we are all stunned. And our coach comes in, and he says, I have nothing to say. And he walks out, mic drop. I mean, we were dumbfounded. That shouldn't have happened. This is the sense we get here with Peter and John standing before the elite and the power brokers and the religious leaders of the day. Peter and John said, we've healed this man by the name of Jesus who is risen from the dead. And there is no other name under heaven and earth by which anyone is saved except this name, Jesus. And they were dumbfounded. They had nothing to say in rebuttal. They got schooled by unschooled men. And this phrase has captivated me for two weeks, and I'll close with it. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And there are two ways to see this phrase. First, in the worldly sense, these men had been with Jesus. They walked with him. They were his disciples. They ate with him. They traveled with him. They knew him. But in the spiritual sense, these men had a relationship with Jesus. They loved him. They talked with him. And now they worshiped him. And their relationship with him made very ordinary people extraordinary. I've been playing a song over and over, and um, gets me choked up for some reason, but it's by a Christian singer, Natalie Grant. And the song... Um, helps me as I hear and read and see things that have gone on in this year and still even going on that break my heart. And she says this in her chorus. She says, your presence is my greatest weapon. Pushing back the darkness, breaking every chain. My worship opens up the heavens, crushing every stronghold. When I speak your name because your presence is my weapon. I've seen some extraordinary people in my life. I'm always amazed at talent, an actor, a singer, an athlete, a scholar, just amazing people. They blow me away at what is possible in the human capacity. And Angela Kay and I still watch American Idol. The other night, she couldn't sleep, and I turned over at 1 a.m. 
And I said, what are you watching on her cell phone? She was watching American Idol. Um, you know, I can, I'm amazed by all of this talent that I see, sophisticated, scholarly, powerful people. But I am often most impressed by ordinary people who simply love Jesus. Who morning after morning get up and they call on his name who, when faced with challenges and difficulties, cry out to him, who, when they endure persecution, death, humiliation, imprisonment, and destitution, they are reminded that the world may ignore them, but this world isn't worthy of them. Friends, the world may ignore you. You may not be sophisticated or powerful, or scholarly, or talented. And maybe after your life is over in this world, only a few people will remember you or talk about you. But I'll remind you this. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And for those who call upon his name, if you're seated here, for those who cry out and call upon his name, he knows your name. Amen.